Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm at the Play the Game conference in Idahoven and I've managed to collar one of the leading figures in the athletes movement, or athletes rights movement, I should say. And that's Brendan Schwab, who's the executive director of the World Players Association. Brendan, thanks for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Sean. Um, Brendan, uh, I've known you now for a couple of years and we were delighted to have you come and speak at our conference uh, and you made a quite a big impression. Uh, both on me and on the attendees. Um, before, before we get into uh, sort of what you stand for at the moment and so forth, I wonder if you could just say what the World Players Association is and how it came into fruition. Well, we're a new organisation, uh, just a couple of years old, but we're the, the consequence of a fairly long conversation that started in 2011, convened by Walter Palmer, a former NBA player and player unionist in Europe. Um, about the need for the athletes to have a voice at the global level. Um, And when we say the athletes, we're primarily at this stage referring to the professional team players, the athletes who have um, been able to form themselves into successful organisations, normally at the national level, um, and then get to a stage where they can have an equal say in the negotiation of the terms and conditions that affect them. What we started to notice with the rise of the Court of Arbitration for Sport and a lot of its decisions, the regulatory power of FIFA, the anti-doping movement, that critical decisions were being made at a time when the governance of sport was at best questionable um, and at worst corrupt, um, that important decisions were being made that fundamentally affected the rights um, of athletes, that affected the good name of sport, um, but that the players were not involved Um, in those decisions. And so we felt that there was a need for um, a global multi-sport voice for players and athletes. Um, And in in December 2014, we made the decision in Cape Town, South Africa, to establish what is now the World Players Association under the leadership of our President Don Fear from the National Hockey League Players Association, formerly, of course, of Major League Baseball players. And we bring together now some 115 player associations who collectively represent um, 85,000 athletes. Wow, that's, that's a lot of athletes. Um, the one, one thing I think, that for those people who aren't familiar, so our listeners in the US will probably know who Don Fear is, uh, and those people in the players movement uh, will know who he is. But for those that aren't that familiar, he's kind of... Um, I remember being at the Sports Law Association conference, I think it was last year or the year before, in which he got a recognition for his life's work, even though he's he's still ongoing at this moment in time. But he's a a pretty heavyweight figure in that movement, isn't he? And quite an iconic figure. Yeah, look, we've really tried to do this well. And and any great organisation or movement starts with its leadership. And so we're honoured to have Don as president. Don succeeded the legendary Marvin Miller, um, who organised Major League Baseball players into probably the strongest union, not, not, not players union, but strongest trade union in any industry in the world. And so Don successfully uh, filled Marvin's shoes, which I think is uh, an extraordinary achievement and made that, that organisation even stronger. Um, and now he's involved in hockey. He retired after having run Major League Baseball for some 25 years, but he can't walk away from a challenge. So when the National Hockey League players were looking for leadership a couple of years ago, uh, Don came out of retirement for that. And we're pleased that he's our president, together with other great leaders from our movement, T.O. Van Seglen, the Secretary General of FIFPRO, is vice president. And we, the, we bring together FIFPRO, the International Cricketers Association, International Rugby, EU Athletes, uh, the National 
professional basketball players, the Japanese baseball players. There's quite a strong player union movement in Australia and New Zealand. And we're all together to um, achieve some common goals. And, and uh, for those people who aren't that familiar with, with your background, obviously you've got a strong background from Australia. Do you want to des describe uh, sort of how you got into the movement as a whole and then how that's I impacting on, in terms of the stuff you're doing internationally? Well, I'm, I started off as a labour lawyer in the early mid-90s and at a time when... Um, the, the big television revenues were coming into Australian sport for the first time. So the, the players then were looking to get organised. The, the career was becoming full-time. And so um, in quite a number of the sports, uh, the players started conversations with themselves about how to form effective player associations. And, and it just so happened that um, my, my career coincided with that. So uh, the AFL players, uh, rugby league, uh, soccer, cricket and rugby union were the main ones to get organised in the 90s and um, I was involved uh, in, that, in that movement, uh, primarily through soccer uh, or football. Um, I was one of the founders of the, the PFA in Australia. That was a very exhilarating experience because there was a view that Australia was a great sporting nation and needed to become a great football nation as well. And so the players not only succeeded in delivering good industrial outcomes and, and good collective bargaining outcomes, but they led the revolution of the sport. We had to close down the governing body and set up a new one, close down a league and set up a new one, which is now the A-League, um, and then move into Asia. And the players were at the, were at the lead, leadership of that. And so it was through my involvement in Australia and then my involvement with soccer, which then led to the global work with FIFA Pro that uh, I had the opportunity to join the World Players Association. So, so for those people listening, will you know, hear a lot of what you're talking about, and they'll hear this sort of the union movement as such. But really, can you just wrap up in essence what it is that you guys are doing for the players? Because I think that sometimes the language can be a little bit inaccessible for those people who aren't familiar. Because I know there's a whole bunch of people listening to this who. You know, essentially, I would say, and I've given advice to, I think their careers lie working with the unions, either in it or advising the unions. Uh, can you just describe what it is that, you, that you're essentially trying to do in terms of, you know, in, in layman's terms for the players? Well, I think the first thing is that we're, we're giving the players a voice, but it's their voice. So we work for the players. So the, the union is the playing group. Um, and uh, we're very strong on that and that was the example that Marvin Miller established in baseball or, or, or going back to the mid-60s when he ran that union from 65 to 81. And that is that you know, the players attend the negotiations, the players uh, drive the objectives of the organisation and we as staff are responsible for executing those strategies. So it's very much a democratically informed um, process and then what do, we, what do we seek to achieve? Um, well, there's an incredible track record now of achievement with the player union movement, starting off something as simple as a standard player contract, independent grievance arbitration, health and safety, pay and conditions, free agency, um, really um, moving to a stage where the whole economics of these leagues are now collectively bargained. And one of the things that we're very proud of is that when the players were given a voice and their rights were respected, that that not only resulted in better careers and better earnings for the players, but it also resulted in, in, in really the economic and cultural transformation of these sports. And therefore, we're very confident that there is no inconsistency whatsoever between our agenda of a fully professional developed player um, and um, the so-called specific needs, needs of sport. 
And that's quite a, a different outcome than what was yeah. our opponents anticipated. You know, the, the argument always was if you got rid of the retain and transfer system in football or if players became free agents or baseball lost its reserve clause uh, or the transfer system ended in its previous guises, that that would be the end of these sports. Well, the opposite has been the case. Um, sport's resilient, and when it's run under competitive conditions in partnership with the players, then it seems to be, and, and the evidence is that it's gone to a much stronger uh, destination. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely as well. In, in the, what we're seeing, it seems to me that, and I'm not sure if you're seeing that there seems to be a more positive trend in that, that in, in terms of also how it's reciprocated by the, the owners of the sports teams or the leagues or the governing bodies in the sense that you can get much better outcomes if you actually have the athletes along with you on the side being brand ambassadors, being the cheerleaders for the sport. Yeah, well, let's look at Major League Baseball as an example. You know, that's a sport in the mid-90s which had a major performance-enhancing drugs problem. Um, and, you know, they weren't mucking around. We're talking human growth hormone. We're talking anabolic steroids. And so the players and the owners sat down and negotiated... Um, a collective solution to that problem. And I think a lot of observers would say, sure, we have to remain vigilant. Uh, that's one of the toughest programs, uh, agreed to by one of the strongest unions. So that says a lot about the philosophy which underpins the player's approach to anti-doping. But it's legally fair, it's just, it's ba backed by good science, it gives players the chance to recuperate. Uh, it, it distinguishes between, for example, performance-enhancing drugs and, um, say, what we would call recreational or, or, or illicit drugs. Um, and it, it, it's based on the fact that the player is a person uh, as well as being an athlete and, he's, and, 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 and his rights need to be respected at the same time as trying to eradicate a problem from the sport. And I think um, people have confidence now that Major League Baseball's been played on its merits. And importantly, they've got, um, which I find fascinating, and a credit to Major League Baseball as well, as, a, as, a, as an organisation for, for, for you know, reaching that agreement with the players, which is they have an independent person who's appointed to run the anti-doping programme. Then if there's any conflicts, I believe that if there's any conflicts there, one of the parties can say, look, we believe that there's, um, this person has a conflict of interest or they're not fulfilling their role, and then it can go to an arbitration and in the meantime, someone else, another independent, will step in to run that, the anti-doping program, which I just think is quite a, a unique and refreshing um, and interesting um, alternative to, say, for example, the wireless system. Yeah, and I think that's the, the, you know, the way it should be. The, the, the fact is that sport is not representative of all its stakeholders when you look at the way it's structured. It's structured to suit those that run the game. And so it's only ever representing 50% um, of the equation. The other 50%, of course, are, are the players. And so uh, independence in terms of the grievance uh, procedure, independence in terms of the administration of these integrity programs is absolutely critical. And the best way to deliver independence is to have it agreed to by the game, have it agreed to by the players, and ensure that people who are responsible for those roles have no conflicts. Uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency, of course, is a, is a so-called partnership between the public authorities uh, or the governments and, and the sporting movement or the Olympic movement. And so it's really uh, excluding the athletes. And we've long uh, maintained that it would be a great move forward for 
the Olympic movement and the governments to see the athletes as equal partners, not nominal partners in the equation, because you know, athletes don't want to have to take performance-enhancing drugs in order to have a career or in order to win um, a contract as, as a collective. That, that's definitely the, the view of our membership. Um, but uh, they also need to have confidence in the program. And by giving players ownership of these programs, then sport is developing a different culture where players are part of the solution and not just part of the problem. And it, and it seems to me that there's, um, from at least from the, uh, Euro, uh, some of the European governmental officials that I've spoken to, that there is this recognition now that, um, that the athletes should actually be involved in that process. Whereas before, it seems to be a real shift, I've noticed over the last couple of years in particular, there seems to be a real shift in the, that sort of attitude where before it was this case when I still think exists in a large number of sporting organisations, which is we'll make a decision then consult the athletes afterwards and actually say, no, bring the athletes in to begin with so you can have more fit for purpose uh, regulations that identify some of the problems before you try to implement. I think that's right. I think sadly though, it, the, at the global and European levels, a lot, a lot of what's motivating that change in view is not necessarily a deep appreciation of the benefits of collective bargaining and the benefits of a genuine athlete's voice, but it's in response to the crises that we've been experiencing, the crises in the governance, the corruption, um, <clears throat> the lack of confidence in the anti-doping system, and, and also you know, the appalling cases we're hearing of the abuse of the rights of athletes, you know, the sexual abuse of gymnasts from the United States, the appalling abuse of children in, in, in English football. Swimming. Um, swimming. Yeah. Um, sorry, tennis, tennis, sorry, not swimming. And, well, and uh, tennis. Swimming years ago, tennis. Now, yeah, yeah, and also just in, in, in relation to football, despite it being fairly well regulated and despite the players being well represented, um, it's such a big game that there are many parts of the world where bullying and harassment mm -hmm. is rife, we've got trafficking of young players, the non-payment of salaries. Like, the issues that we're actually dealing with at the global level are very basic, yeah. and they really shouldn't be issues that require... Uh, such an inordinate use of, uh, of, of, of the resources of the sport. Um, on that point, I, I, I think I wanted to get into some of the work you're doing around human rights, but as a backdrop to this, I also uh, just wanted to touch on this, because I do, you know, I've said it to many people privately, and I've also said it at our conference, and I'll say it again, and again, and again, and again. Um, I had the absolute privilege of being out in Paris and, and chairing the uh, World Players Association uh, Player Development um, Conference. Uh, and the reason why I say it was a pleasure was that the attitude in which all of these leading experts from all around the world, from all the different player unions, all the different sports, um, uh, came together and shared views, uh, ideas, concepts, best practice, but did so in an environment which is unusual in the legal environment, which is with an open mind, they're willing to take on criticism, and actually they, they are for criticism. Um, Obviously, I was very fortunate to have that, 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 that exposure over those two days. Can you just wrap up in terms of um, what the motivation was for that conference and then I think it leads on nicely to what the outcomes were, which I think are incredibly important. Yeah, well, really what's important for the World Players Association is to uh, promote best practice within our, within our member organisations and also to advance matters of common concern. They're really the, the, the twin objectives that we have and one of the things that we all have in common is, is the unique nature of the athletic career path. It doesn't change whatever sport you pursue. It's short term, it's precarious, it's highly skilled. Uh, it's incredibly uh, emotionally demanding as well as physically demanding. Um, and it, it, it finishes at a young age. 
And so therefore, um, we have to spend a lot of time in what we call player development and well-being, which is really about the holistic development um, of the player as a person first and as an athlete um, second. And our more advanced player associations undertake an incredible uh, range of work in assisting players in terms of their education, their physical and mental health, their, their, their social well-being, um, and just their, you know, there might be their financial plans for life, just to ensure that they're, that they're well positioned. And um, this is an area that we're very keen to see expand. And we're thinking that, um, you know, when, when athletes are at a very young age, professionalised. You know, one of the issues that came out of that conference is what people talk about, the professionalisation of nine-year-olds. Then it's becoming clear that sport is losing touch with the reality that it is dealing with children, it's dealing with young uh, men and women and so therefore we're determined to make sure that players um, really benefit uh, as people from their involvement. And who is, sorry, uh, I've, I've just drawn a blank on the lady from um, UNICEF. Liz Twyford. It was Liz, yeah, Liz who, is, who is excellent and she it was really interesting, she, you know, she, she came into the conference, I think she couldn't make it for day one but she said uh, the rugby players associations were all saying you know better people make better players and she yeah. came in and said um, you know treating children well basically better people make better players no matter what their age that, that, that's true yeah. across the board and I think that's something that I thought was quite a powerful quite a simple but powerful message and I think that's something that um, hopefully there's a trickle down effect you guys are having now on this on the collective for those who aren't familiar in the collective bargaining process one of the key um, discussion points is often these player development funds as such and how that funds. Can you just explain the, the mechanism and I'd like to get on to touch on some of the work you're doing around human rights which I also think is you know hopefully going to have a very positive impact on the, the wider sports community. Yeah, the, the programs are, are not cheap you know they, they, they require um, a lot of access to a lot of experts and a lot of services um, and that those services are provided through uh, people who we call uh, player development managers or personal development managers, PDMs. We really want to build this as one of the key professional roles within world sport um, and we think it's very important that those people work for the player associations because the player association has no agenda other than the well-being of the player. Um, and that um, obviously an employer can be in a conflicted situation when it comes to one of the toughest issues, which is the transition of an athlete away from a club, away from a career. So if an employer is going to tell a player, you're no longer required, then the employer is often not well positioned then to assist that player with the transition. And it's not to say there's not good people doing these type of roles. It's just the fact that, that um, I was talking about with HR roles earlier within sport. If you look at the British cycling situation where the, it appeared from the report that the HR department at British Cycling with the Jeff Farnes situation were kind of put in this awkward position where they were really there to protect the board and the coaches as opposed to actually look after the well-being of employees or contractors, whatever you want to call them, mm. of the athletes as well and anyone in the organisation. I think that's a common problem we see across sectors as well. Mm. So, mm. It's, so it's quite an interesting thing. And also one of the challenges, um, and the reason why it requires fun separate funding as well, is because... Um, often it's not benchmarked, so the managers aren't often rewarded for earmarking that players should go and uh, do uh, career development plans or you know, get work experience or go, go into education. So having that uh, allocated separate means that that money is actually well spent as opposed to allocated somewhere else. Yeah, look, you know, sport has limited resources and so it has to make a decision about where money is going to be spent and we think this is a, a critical area. 
And so we really do prioritise it in the collective bargaining um, negotiations and, and, and try and um, ensure that the, the programs are at a high level. And to assist our unions in doing that, the key outcome of the conference in Paris was the development of the World Player Development Standard. And that sets out the seven or eight key areas in which these programs uh, need to be working. I mentioned some of them before, career, education, transition, uh, mental health, for example. And these are all, these are all issues which are, you know, on a week-by-week on a week basis, we're seeing, you know, lots of media attention, lots of, um, you know, former athletes coming out and saying they've got a mental health problem, they didn't get support, etc. So it's really uh, timely and important. Uh, we'll put a link to the bottom to that in, in the bottom of the podcast for those who want to sort of read more about it and to the World Play Association website. Um, and also you're doing, and you were here at Play the Game talking about human rights. And I think this is quite interesting, again, to take away from, you know, traditionally unions were being viewed as being confrontational and not that collaborative, you know, taking a position and holding that position. And at times I'm sure that's a necessary uh, measure or strategy as part of any player association, they're sort of negotiation tools. But at the moment you're doing some very exciting work on the sort of athlete human rights in the broadest sense. Uh, can you just describe and just tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and what you were speaking about today? Yeah, sure. Look, as a collective group, uh, the World Players Association made a decision that we have to um, work to embed the human rights of everyone who's involved um, in sport. Um, and that, of course, includes the players. Um, and we've done it for a couple of reasons. The first one, of course, is in response to the, the crisis that we've seen in golf sport in the last few years, be it the, the, the rights of migrant workers in Qatar, the lack of free speech at the Beijing Olympics, the appalling deprivation of property of the local communities around Rio. Um, so sport, uh, when it should be a force for good, unfortunately hasn't had um, a great track record. And so we have felt um, it important to take on a leadership position within, a, uh, within the, the broader human rights community to ensure that sport embeds the human rights of everyone involved in accordance with the standards of the United Nations. Uh, and a, a critical document called the United Nations Guiding Principles on, on Human Rights and business. Um, this effort has really started to um, make uh, or ha have a few good wins over the course of the last last 12 months. We've seen FIFA, uh, uh, the IOC, the Commonwealth Games Federation and UEFA all commit to what's called the UNGPs, the United Nations Guiding Principles. Uh, FIFA is the most advanced on paper. It's, um, it's adopted a human rights policy, which uh, refers to what we would call internationally recognised human rights, be it the UN Rights of the Child, the Interna International Declaration of Human Rights, the Fundamental Rights of the International Labour Organisation. And, and um, this means that the mega sporting events will now be conducted or will be obliged to be conducted in a way which respects these rights throughout the entire life cycle of the event and also, where necessary, provides access to a remedy for those that have their rights violated. And that access to a remedy piece is the critical missing link at the moment. What does it mean for players? Well, at the global level, uh, there's no legal framework that protects players. We're dealing with Lex Sportiva or a global uh, sports law which can actually override national law because of the use of compulsory arbitration or clauses to or the Court of Arbitration of Sport. And so therefore um, we're, we're determined to reform Lex Sportiva so that it is consistent with the fundamentally recognised human rights um, of the athletes. And um, 
we're confident that will happen. As I said, the human rights policy of FIFA is binding. It, it expressly applies to players. And so for all the sports lawyers who are listening to your podcast, I think that this is a really important obligation, actually, on the legal profession to ensure that sports law is developed, not just in a way which is nuanced to the so-called specific needs of the sport, but, but in a way which respects the fundamental human rights um, of athletes. Because the law is not just about protecting those that govern, it's about protecting those who are governed. And um, it needs to protect people, and at this stage that is um, a big area where Lexportiva needs to enhance itself. Well, I think that's one of the... Uh, I was speaking to someone from Notice Today because we've got Arnie, who's with us uh, interning at the moment, about this, about what's the role of lawyers in society. And lawyers play a, a crucial role. I think sometimes we can get so distracted with very technical arguments, we forget that actually the purpose is to create a rights-based system in which there's a, a just outcome and recourse for people. People mm. are held accountable, I think. Um, so I congratulate you on your work. On that point, for those of the people who want to get an example of what Brendan was talking about, listen to the podcast with Nan Sato. Um, in which she talks about the fact that the baseball players' union is recognised in Japan, Japanese law, but the players aren't actually don't actually have any fundamental rights themselves as employees or as workers, as they would call it. Um, keep up the great work, Brendan. As honestly, it's uh, always a pleasure to to, to to one be involved in what you're doing, um, particularly around human rights stuff, around player development, around some of the softer issues. Maybe that people would say, or the hardcore sports lawyers would say. Um, that sometimes we forget about it and I think it is making a positive impact and we're definitely seeing a change. So congratulations to you and all your members and keep up the great work. I really appreciate you taking the time out because you've got a crazy schedule. You were speaking earlier. I managed to call you uh, to pull you away uh, from, the, from the rest of the conference. All the best. Thanks, John.